You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Joanna Coles describes herself as a believer in the power of excellent content, storytelling, and the unparalleled value of personal and professional relationships cared for over time. She's worked as a journalist at some of the most influential British newspapers, including The Guardian and The Times, and in 2006 joined Hearst as editor-in-chief of Marie Claire magazine, then moving to Cosmopolitan before becoming the company's chief content officer in 2016. Joanna's won a number of awards for her journalism, including at Cosmo, a Matrix Award for Women in Communication, and was named an Editor of the Year by Adweek. Joanna has also successfully turned her hand to TV, including creating and executive producing one of my favourite behind-the-scenes TV shows, Running in Heels, was a mentor on Project Runway, and executive produced the e-reality series So Cosmo, in which she also appeared on camera. Joanna's on the boards of Snap, Sonos, and Density Software, and is also the author of Love Rules, a modern-day guide to finding love. In fact, the legend Sarah Jessica Parker said of the book, while I'm not sure what Carrie Bradshaw would have made of today's new world of dating, I do know this, armed with Love Rules, she would have figured it all out in one season. Joanna, welcome to Brits in the Big Apple. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love that quote from Sarah Jessica Parker, although I'm quite glad that she didn't have a copy of your book because I'm not sure whether I would have coped half as well in my earlier years if there hadn't been six series of Sex in the City. Well, I don't think she would have ended up with Mr. Big, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start by hearing a little bit about your early career and, and perhaps you could tell us about how you got into journalism. My early career actually began when I was 10, when I started writing for the Yorkshire Post, the Yorkshire Evening Post, which had a children's section. It was called the Junior Post, and I got two pounds for each piece I wrote. And I do think that people's childhoods often hold clues as to what their future is going to hold. And my favourite thing um, that I used to do with my friends was draw pictures of clothes, of fashion. I used to spend hours making dolls clothes for my dolls and for my teddy bears and my trolls. I had an army of trolls. And actually, when I look back and think, oh, fashion magazines, yes, there's a lot of logic to that. I started in serious journalism. I, I worked at the Daily Telegraph before I joined The Guardian. And then, as you mentioned in the intro, The Times. But it started when I was little and when I realized I could get paid for it. And then I created a magazine with my friend who lived next door, my best friend at the time, and we sent it to Buckingham Palace. And the Queen, I guess the late Queen, one should say, had one of her maids-in-waiting write us a letter saying how much she enjoyed it and how she was looking forward to future issues of our magazine. So that also gave me a lot of encouragement. And I do think figureheads like the Queen have extraordinary influence when they have a team of letter writing people. I found it very helpful. And I know one of my sons wrote to the White House several times to get, you know, their engagement on whatever his his issue was, probably climate change, and was always thrilled and encouraged by hearing back. It's a very powerful way of connecting with your readership, isn't it? 
I absolutely love the idea of you sending a magazine to the Queen. Can you tell me what you what what did you write about? I think there were some rather bad poems and illustrations and our observations about what was going on in Leeds, which is where we were growing up at the time. But uh, the letter back was so gracious. I still have it. And it was just incredibly encouraging. And I remember when it arrived. And in those days, you looked to the mail with great excitement, not like today when it's just full of old you know, nonsense that you don't want. I, in, in fact, I rarely open my mailbox. And when I do, there's never a personal note in it or almost never mm-hmm. a personal note that you want. But I remember when the letter came and it had this glorious kind of stamp and it had a, you know, it had a proper wax seal on the back of it. And it just felt like this grand missive from a future life that felt very, very exciting. Wow. And so prescient now when you look back on your career. And you see how that has gone. Yeah, she she was right to encourage me. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And and so you worked for a number of uh, British newspapers and then you decided to make the transition over to the States. Can you tell me a little bit about the thought process behind that and what, what drove you to come out here? Well, I came for The Guardian to be their bureau chief and I was so thrilled to come and work in New York. I'd spent a lot of time coming over here and it always felt like coming to the future. If you're living in London, it's hard to think of a better city other than perhaps New York. It felt bigger. It felt like the stakes in media were bigger. They had bigger magazines, which I was passionate about. And I had an entire continent to write about, which couldn't have been more exciting. Uh, and it's a plum job if you're a British if you're a British newspaper reporter coming to cover New York and America is one of the big plum assignments. And I was thrilled. And then I was here for The Guardian for about a year and then moved to The Times. I stayed at The Times for three years. And then I moved into the American marketplace, which I was very excited to do. And I think Once you move here for a British organization, it's a little bit like working for a sort of FBI protection program in that nobody ever sees your work. You're living in New York and you're working in New York, but no one ever sees your work. Your work's all going back to the UK. And this was really slightly pre real internet in terms of everybody reading everything online. Now it would be very different, of course. But back then it felt like I want to work where my audience lives. Mm. So I decided to stay in New York and move into magazines, which I'm very glad I did. I was going to ask you about the 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 Guardian and then the Times readership. So were you you had a readership in the US, but you were primarily focusing on the UK market, or was it was it just sending stories back to the UK? Yeah, I had no readership in the US. Really had to buy the paper because the Guardian website really wasn't set up for an American audience, unlike today. You wrote these stories that you were, you know, pretty proud of and you felt like you had a different point of view. And then the problem was that you never talked to anybody who'd read them because the only people that read them were really in the UK. And the Guardian has a big presence in in America, but it didn't then. And so you moved into the world of magazines and you started off at Marie Claire and and then moved to Cosmopolitan. And again, along with Sex and City, I can I can chart my, you know, my my teenage years and my early adult life and reading both of those magazines. Can you tell me a little bit more about your time at both of them? And and they're both quite different magazines, actually, you know, in, in both their focus and and also the kinds of things that they like to highlight. So could you talk a little bit about your 
leadership as part of that and what you brought as as the editor to to both of those publications? Well, my background was really as a, a more traditional journalist. I hadn't spent any real time in women's magazines at all, but I loved them and I'd certainly read them over the years. And for me, Cosmo growing up was like, you know, an older sister whispering in your ear or or hanging out with a friend that, that felt cooler than you. So I was <laughs> particularly excited to, to go to both Marie Claire and Cosmo because of that. And I loved the aspect of fashion. I mean, it was really fun to spend time uh, thinking and talking to fashion designers, understanding fashion better. And what I thought of it really, I thought of the whole adventure in women's magazines as feminism by stealth. So what you wanted to be first was entertaining and engaging and constantly talking to readers about things you felt were important to them. But you also wanted there to be an empowering message. And I think when I got to Cosmo, which is very much a magazine about relationships and about love and about sex, and for a lot of women, it's how they learn about sex. I wanted it to feel that it wasn't a magazine for women who were just trying to please their partners. It was a magazine for women who wanted to have a good time themselves in bed and enjoy themselves and weren't entirely in the service of someone else, which had traditionally Mm. been the assumption, I think, behind the magazine. So we were able to pivot that a bit. Yeah, I love the way that you describe Cosmopolitan. I mean, I basically just remember hiding it from my mum. And for a lot of women, it was really one of the few places that they could read honestly about about sex. Well, that was what I was going to to say, actually, because it, it felt like in the 90s, early noughties, it was still a bit of a taboo subject. And it was still something where you had pretty average sex education in schools that didn't really go into any of the emotional side of relationships. It was all very kind of, you know, just be, make sure that you, you know, use protection and do this and do that. And I think that what you did at the magazine, what that magazine did so amazingly was, as you say, it 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 gave women a voice. And, and not only that, it gave women the ability to actually set the agenda and to talk about the things that women need to talk about. And, and, I wonder, did you get much pushback at the time for the agenda that you were setting out? Because it it was, you know, that was still quite new, even, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's astonishing to think that it was new. We didn't get much pushback. We got a lot of excitement from readers who felt mm. that we were speaking to them. I mean, Helen Gurley Brown, who really reinvented the modern Cosmo and was the great magazine editor of the 20th century, she was incredibly influential. And certainly, you know, Vanity Fair, Vogue, all owe her an enormous debt in the way that she physically designed a magazine and and presented it to readers. I mean, Helen's magazine came of age at the birth of the pill, when the, Mm. the pill was, you know, approved by the FDA. And so For the first time, women were able to have sex almost as a leisure activity uh, without worrying so much. But the underlying mission of the magazine was really to try and get you a partner. And it was almost as if you were trying to ensnare a man by having the best possible sex you could with him. And that would somehow uh, work out. And I think by the time I took over, which was 2012, There was a new awakening of feminism or feminism 4.0, as it's been referred to, 
where women were beginning to wake up and realize that they weren't in leadership positions at work, even though they'd been at college for the same amount of time as men. And the same number of women were now going to college as men, but they weren't actually you know, staying on parallel tracks. Mm. In fact, the minute they went into corporations, they were beginning to lose ground. And so there was a, a different sense of uh, women negotiating for themselves and standing up for themselves and corporations beginning to realize if they wanted to keep women in the workforce, they were going to have to pay attention to it. And of course, that's all been sped up enormously through the Me Too movement. So it's been a very interesting last 10, 15 years for women as they reclaim their position and start fighting what I loosely refer to as the patriarchy. (laughs) And talk about the role of publications like Cosmopolitan as as part of that and the importance of them in the wider ecosystem. And were there any particular initiatives or campaigns that you championed while you were there that that supported that, that wider vision? Well, well, while I was at Cosmopolitan, we actually got the magazine's first national magazine award for a really in-depth piece on contraception, which at the time, I think people thought, well, surely women don't need something like this. But as we look at what's going on right now, we realize actually they do need this. We did an enormous amount of coverage of not taking abortion rights for granted, some of which clearly fell on deaf ears. We did an enormous amount on domestic violence and intimate violence, as it's now called, which has really, you know, become a much less taboo subject to talk about across all income brackets. And in fact, I'm making a television drama with Amazon and with Priyanka Chopra starring uh, based on a book called Assume Nothing, which is by a writer called Tanis Alvaretnam, who had an extraordinary story of domestic violence or in intimate violence. Um, so we covered a lot of the issues that are really important to women that are very difficult to talk about in public. Happily, they are being talked about more now. We were definitely part of that army of women saying we've got to start talking about these issues. It was wonderful to be part of it and a little sad to have to be part of it, I think. We also spent a lot of time, I mean, the two most popular questions I got were, how do I have an orgasm? Because women were still finding that difficult. And the other question was, how do I get a raise? So we spent a lot of time uh, on the physics of sex and we spent a lot of time on the physics of how you ask for a raise, how you negotiate on behalf of yourself. We looked at all the data. We did a big excerpt of Lean In when Sheryl Sandberg's book came out, which whatever you think of how she handled Facebook is an incredibly useful book for women with much practical advice about how to negotiate for yourself. So I felt like we pretty much hit on the orgasm issue and the raise issue in almost every issue. Our goal was that you had better, closer, more communicative relationships and you hopefully earned a little bit more money by the time you'd finished reading a few issues, Cosmo. Here, here, Quite right too, on both fronts, frankly. I, uh, I wanted to pan out a little bit because you have worked in both the UK and the US uh, industries. And I just wanted to get your take on similarities and differences between the two. And I wonder whether you could compare and contrast your time as a journalist facing the UK market versus your journalist in the US. And I appreciate I'm talking about newspapers then versus sort of magazines. And so that is a different um, content, but I wonder whether there are any similarities or differences sort of 
at a macro level in terms of the audiences and the way that you've found them? Well, probably the biggest difference is that American journalists are, for the most part, better funded. Not true of local newspapers, where obviously there's been a terrible shortage of local news outlets now. I think the latest number in the last couple of years to close is nearly 3,000 local news outlets, which is dire for democracy. I mean, if there's nobody paying attention, it's really nerve-wracking and it can lead to all sorts of of corruption and local corruption, um, which is really not good. But largely, the bigger institutions are better financed. And when I first started working in the American market, I was astonished that there were fact-checkers because you assumed that journalists would do their own fact-checking. But actually, it's very beneficial having a fact-checker, assuming you have a good writer in the first place. Fact-checkers can add all sorts of nuance to a story, and it's always better having a second eye to something in case you've, you know, taken on a bias you didn't realise. Or there are many different sources for one particular fact. Having someone whose expertise is fact-checking can be really helpful, and there just aren't the resources for that in Britain. And as a result, Britain's journalism is much more opinionated for, for the most part. Whereas mm. there are organisations here, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post, that are really trying to tread it down the middle more. And I wonder how the the explosion into the digital market has has also changed the way that you've approached some of these projects. Can you talk a little bit about how you've made that transition to have an online audience as well as the actual magazine itself? Well, an online audience is a wonderful thing because you're getting immediate feedback. I mean, nothing more frustrating than a monthly magazine where you put it out and then the reaction is incredibly Mm -hmm. slow because you don't even know if people have gotten it on the same day. And with a country as big as America, you know, you would have some issues dropping on the East Coast at a different time to the West Coast to a different, you know, few days in the middle of the country or down South. So wonderful to have the ability to have a direct conversation and real engagement with readers. That's the first thing. Obviously, the velocity of content is just enormous when you're keeping an online audience engaged. Much more opportunity to jump into conversations that are ongoing and add to them when you see them developing in other places. So Cosmo has an incredibly robust uh, and very smart digital presence now where they're involved in every conversation that they want to be. And that's wonderful to be able to do that. Just means you need a ton of journalists and a ton of commentators and they have to be very good and very fast, but they are. Uh, But Mm. it's exciting. And as a result, you get a much bigger a much bigger audience. When we first went on to Snapchat, you know, you suddenly had this extraordinary new audience that were looking at the magazine content or or the brand content, Cosmo content. It's almost sort of agnostic where it comes from every morning, which felt really exciting. Mm. I'm going to ask a controversial question now, but do you still see a future for print magazines like Marie Claire and Cosmo in the future? Or do you think that it's all going to move online and that people will take their content, you know, as you say, in in much more of a real-time way that is influenced by their own personal setup and routines and what have you. What do you think there is a Yeah, it's a great question. I think the thing that changed everything was Twitter and this sense that everything has to, you you have access to everything that's going on right now. And that little three S of three seconds, which was when this post just dropped, really changed the cadence of media for everybody. And it's been a real struggle, I think, for all sorts of, of media brands. So 
in answer to your question, I'm not sure there is a future for print magazines because the cadence of a monthly magazine doesn't really make a lot of sense. It used to be the only cadence there was, or maybe there would be a weekly magazine like New York Magazine or The New Yorker or the news magazines like Newsweek and Time. But really, online has has stolen and closed that time gap. So now people expect new information and new entertainment at all times. It's a rolling 24-7, 365 cadence. So a monthly cadence no longer makes sense. A lot of advertising has gone online because it's more measurable. And so one or two specialist magazines may survive, but I think the newsstand as we know it is much diminished. It will be smaller runs of magazines. And I know certain brands are doing, you know, two magazines a year, but they're making them big and glossy. And if they're fashion, perhaps they're reflecting what's just happened in that that season's fashion shows, or it might reflect what people are going to be wearing in the next fashion season. But I don't really see a monthly cadence anymore. It just doesn't feel relevant. I was on a um, long haul flight the other day and I was really struck by how many people around me were reading magazines and newspapers on their iPads. And, you know, I do that as well. Interestingly, I went and bought a magazine at the airport to take on the plane with me, which, you know, feels quite nostalgic and and interestingly, not something that I would do in New York, you know, as part of a regular routine. I would I would look at my iPad, but it was interesting to see how many people were were using their iPads to get their, their information, which backs up what you're saying. It used to be that my favourite thing was to go to Hudson News or WH Smith's in the UK and load up with magazines and spend the entire trip looking at them. And then you would leave them all on the plane or usually, actually, I would give them to the um, air stewardesses or the air hostesses. But I've stopped doing that. And it's to your point, when you look around a plane, everybody is on a device. It's just Mm. more convenient. And I wanted to come on to talk about your book, Love Rules, is described as a diet book for romantic relationships, which I love, with love hacks, 15 rules. And and I think you also talk in that book about the digital dating scene, which has been around now for a number of years. And I was reflecting about how it started off actually with, it was Guardian Soulmates, wasn't it? And some of these kind of online platforms and now is effectively apps, our, our apps on your phone. Can you talk about talk about your book more broadly and, and what you wanted to do as part of writing that? If you could see behind me, you would see a row of my book, which is actually rather thrillingly published in several different languages. And the only reason I mention it is because I noticed on Twitter today there was lots of discussion. It must think it might be Brazil because there was wow. various chat about it. Well, well, really, my book is looking at the advent of apps as an arrow in your quiver to meet people. And clearly it's incredibly effective. We've got, you know, two generations, millennials and Gen Z, who are digitally native and very very happy meeting people online and then taking it off and meeting them in real life. And now over a quarter of marriages, um, the couple has met online. So an incredibly positive development from the days of classified ads that we used to have in The Guardian or in England, Private Eye, GSOH, which I think stood for good sense of humor. Mm, Happily, it's much more evolved since then. And we have Bumble, we've got Hinge, we've got all sorts of, you know, we've got Tinder, we've got Grindr, all sorts of, of ways of meeting people. It's also very easy to waste a lot of time on them. And so there are a lot of hacks in the book about how to get from online to real life, if you think that's what you want to do with this person. And one of the things I absolutely advise, though I know 
Gen Z would rather stick red hot needles in their eyes than use their telephone to actually speak to somebody on the telephone is it's essential to talk to someone before you meet them in real life. Otherwise, you may be heading for a complete waste of time. Um, and it's also really important, and this is incredibly useful advice for if you meet someone online or in real life, to, to meet someone more than once. Unless you're absolutely repelled by someone, the actual way people tend to get to like each other is to spend time together. Mm -hmm. And if someone likes you, you are more likely to like them back. And if you're doing something together, you're likely to create an energy that is enjoyable. And if you're feeling that, then you need to carry on seeing the person as opposed to, oh my goodness, I met him for 10 minutes. I really didn't like him. He said one thing that irritated me, I'm off, which is unfortunately a byproduct of living such a fast life, which we do on our phones. And real life and real chemistry isn't actually that transactional. And all the research shows that the more time you spend with someone, the more likely you are to like them. And that's actually how you build a meaningful relationship. Very difficult to do it mm -hmm. online. And unfortunately, what happens online is that people create a persona, not even intentionally, but your persona online is often very different to your persona in real life. You've got more time to come up with, you know, funny things to say or whatever. And so you actually have these two artificial personalities communicating online, which may be very far from the real personalities they are when they're actually sitting opposite each other on a, a, at a dinner table. At the time when I wrote the book, which came out a couple of years ago now, the average length or, or the average number of texts it took for people to get from connecting online, so matching or swiping, to meeting in real life was around 250, which represents an enormous amount of time, which most people actually can't afford. And understanding that a flirty online chat is no indication of whether or not you're actually going to like someone when you meet them. It's zero indication. You can have wonderful online chats with people that the minute you sit down with them, you realize, oh, this isn't going to work. That's really interesting. And, and I can completely see the importance of uh, not just making a snap judgment the first time you meet someone, yep. but I also, my sense is that people are so impatient nowadays that they feel like they have to have squared all the boxes or ticked all of the boxes straight away and make a quick judgment on whether they think somebody is the right person or not. And, and what you're saying is actually give it more time and, and maybe not all of those boxes are going to be ticked straight away, but have another go and go on a walk, go to the zoo, do, you know, join a choir. I mean, don't, don't assume that your social life is going to be taken care of by a dating app. I mean, it may well be that you meet all sorts of people and that you want to put aside two nights a week to just meet people that you've met on a dating app. But do lots of other things, get engaged in the world, because you're more likely to meet someone doing that than you are. Well, you'll definitely meet people on apps, but you're more likely to have the time to develop a relationship if you're part of a wider social circle where you're doing everything. Maybe it's a sports team, maybe you're a running team, maybe you're helping, you know, dogs at the local dog sanctuary or pet sanctuary. But get out and involve yourself in the bigger community and you will meet people and you will meet them in unusual ways. And someone you've been, work, you know, maybe dog walking alongside for six months suddenly begins to look more attractive to you because you've spent more time with them and you realize this is a nice, good person. 
and Which also is almost yeah Go well on. no the only other thing i was going to say is the ease of online usually means that people have way more than one conversation going online so i mean i was talking to a, a guy on Saturday, actually, who is describing his dating life and saying that several of his friends, you know, have up to 20 women on threads, text threads that they have going at any one time. And you don't want to be one of those 20. Sounds exhausting as well. How do you uh, how do you make sure that you're having the right conversation with the right person? Well, because a lot of the time, you know, text exchanges are quite banal, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. And they don't really mean anything. I, I think the biggest thing I'm trying to convey is there is no substitute for real life. Um, I mean, much easier to have a, a text-only boyfriend, uh, but but much less satisfying in the long run. I wanted to ask you about uh, another project that you led, which was Freeforms, the bold type, and um, which discussed a number of different female-centric issues professionally and personally. And I'd just like to know what you're most proud of about that show, which again, feels like it it sort of encapsulated the whole women's empowerment, talking about issues that might not otherwise be talked about. And, you know, it's a really powerful show. And tell us a little bit more about that and, and perhaps also what its legacy going forward might be. Well, it was so much fun doing The Bold Type. And the goal was to show a group of women in the workplace together who weren't constantly in, in conflict and catfights with each other, but the conflict was essentially in the outside world and they sort of, it was them against the world in a way. And it was a very idealized, but nonetheless, I hope empowering vision of a female boss, some of which I like to think in my better moods I inspired, but was also based on a lot of the women that I had worked with, who I found very supportive and very strong. And there is this feeling Perhaps less so now, but there certainly was a very strong feeling, oh, women are really tough on women. Women bosses are awful. They're such bitches. And in popular culture, it's very hard to find really positive role models of female bosses. They're either sleeping with someone or they're drunk, being unpleasant to younger women. And that wasn't actually my experience. I'd come across great female colleagues and I'd had great female bosses. And I'd had bad female bosses too, but I'd had great male and great and less good male bosses too. And I just felt women didn't get a fair shot at it. And also what I wanted to do is reflect the fun that I had had in the trenches with my friends when we started off in newspaper journalism together. My best friend, Jane Finn, who was the inspiration for the Jane Sloan character, I met at the Daily Telegraph and we became, you know, godmothers to each other's first child. We're still great friends She's now a very successful novelist in Britain with a new book out, actually, which is fantastic, called Widowland, which is a dystopian view of the future. But, you know, I have an enormous number of female friends from my working days that I wanted to reference mm. in the show to encourage younger women in the workforce. And the show itself touches on all sorts of things from, you know, abortion to sexual abuse to, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace to gun violence, but it does it all through stories. So you don't feel that you're being banged over the head on it. And actually it's on Netflix internationally and on Hulu in the US. Someone told me the other day it was incredibly popular among young women in India and in Israel, uh, in Italy, actually, all the I countries, oddly. But it's exciting to think that it has a resonance beyond my own experience. And I get lots of 
outreach from people on LinkedIn saying, thank you for doing this show. And I love this character and I love this character. And hopefully there may be a spin-off. We're talking about doing a spin-off. So that would be really exciting. I'm so impressed that you've been a TV producer, an editor, a writer. Which which medium have you enjoyed the most? Well, I like all of it, actually. I love telling stories. I mean, I, I've just shot a pilot for ABC with a co-producer, my co-producer, John Legend, actually. And we had so much fun doing that. It involves a brilliant chorus director in Ohio. And we shot we shot the pilot in Springfield, which is where John grew up. And it was really wonderful bringing people together after COVID to sing and create community around around music just felt really excited. So I tend to be very excited about whatever project I'm working on at the time. Finally, tell us us a little bit more, maybe some teasers about what you do have coming down the track. Well, hopefully we'll know about that show when when the pilot is going to air and cross fingers whether or not it gets picked up for a season, which we really hope it does. I I try and be fairly discreet about upcoming projects because I never want to jinx them. So well, other than the show, I'm doing Assume Nothing with Priyanka for Amazon, which I'm also very excited about. And we've got a terrific writer attached to it. And we're just, you know, she's just writing away. So fingers crossed for when we start shooting that. But Priyanka will play the lead role. Oh, very exciting. Excellent. Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you for sharing your experiences, for shining a spotlight on really important issues over the course of your career and for championing and empowering women, which is is clearly such a strong thread throughout every role and, and experience that you've had. So thank you very much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Oh, well, my pleasure, Hannah. Thank you for having me. And I'm just thinking it all boils back to that, that note, actually, from the Queen, who it's hard not to think about, uh, obviously, at the moment. But that tiny note of encouragement went an incredibly long way. That's a really fitting uh, tribute to end on thank you thank you you're listening to brits in the big apple brought to you by the british consulate in new york if you'd like to hear more about the work of the british consulate please follow us on twitter or instagram at uk in new york thank you for listening